0: After the first session, which really set the scene for why we should care about inclusive growth, we will go a bit more in detail into some of the causes of these um, uh, uh, trends in divergence. There's always a big discussion on technological change versus globalization, um, and of course these things also are interconnected uh, to a large extent. So the, the aim of, of this uh, session here is to look a bit more into these different uh, causes and what the effect is on uh, inclusiveness. We have three very uh, excellent speakers on this, this who have done a lot of research on this, so uh, we're really really looking forward to getting some results from, uh, from the analysis. Uh, I propose we start with Monica Bredzi, she's uh, the Head of Unit of uh, Territorial Analysis and Statistics at the Regional Development Policy Division of OECD. Um, And she will touch upon a very important uh, dimension of inclusiveness, which is the geographical dimension, cities versus rural, but also within cities, uh, growing uh, inequality uh, here. So
1: Monica, the floor (laughs) is yours. Maybe I will take, uh, I have a few slides, just some graphs. Okay.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Good morning, everybody, and thanks very much for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, participate at this panel uh, on inclusive growth in Europe, although I will uh, uh, discuss a bit with a specific perspective of... Uh, what's happening uh, in cities but also why, why I take the cities as an example of why we should care about looking at cities. Uh, as you may know, the, uh, the OECD has been working uh, on inclusive growth since uh, 2012. This has become one of the priorities of the organization and uh, I will uh, refer to some recent uh, uh, work uh, this publication, "Making Cities Work for All," that will be uh, published in two weeks, um, that looks uh, at the at the city dimension. So the the starting point uh, uh, of the current context, uh, um, characterized by the slowdown of productivity and rising inequalities, that we have already discussed this morning, uh, exa- exacerbated uh, in the recent years uh, in by the low public uh, investment uh, and high in unemployment in many countries. And this is just to say that while the low productivity and the rising inequality is a match longer, uh, let's say, a trend um, that cannot be considered uh, uh, caused by the economic uh, downturn the of 2008. Um, in such a context, uh, uh, we already touched upon this morning, we cannot take for granted that technological changes uh, will lead to better economic performance, but also that the benefits of higher uh, productivities where in the sector that will happen will be then broadly um, shared across the society. Therefore, um, the uh, the concept of changing the uh, economic paradigm, as I uh, was said uh, uh, today, and looking at inclusive growth, that means not only that the benefits of growth are shared uh, in society. Uh, more broadly across society, but means also that more people are contributing to generating and to participating in the economy and society. Um, I'd like to take a specific perspective, which is the ones on cities. And uh, because nowhere more than in cities, we, the the disparities, the divide between prosperity and equality is more evident. Uh, And also it's in cities where we can really think of deploying innovative solutions so that the impact of technological change can benefit uh, all residents. So I would like to use the cities as a sort of laboratories where we look at uh, rising rising inequalities and, uh, and also the impact of technological change and globalization. So we know that cities are undisputed drivers of national economic growth, uh, if con- we consider metropolitan areas, so the larger 200 largest cities uh, in the OECD countries, uh, where more or less half of the OECD population lives, they have contributed to more than 60% of job creation in the past 15 years, of more than 60% of the economic growth, and as a result, um, household incomes in uh, in cities is uh, on average. Uh, uh, higher than uh, elsewhere uh, in their country. Of course, there are differences across OECD countries, but in general, household income is much higher in cities than than, uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, Metropolitan areas are more productive, Uh, and this is true everywhere, uh, explained by the concentration of different industries, uh, so the access to skilled labor, infrastructure, innovation, etc., and trade, of course. Uh, But what uh, research finds is also that high-skilled cities outperform less-skilled ones, not only in terms of productivity or economic performance, but also in other uh, for other dimensions such as population growth, uh, employment, etc. And so uh, globalization and technological progress have amplified uh, uh, the role of education in cities. And what we find is, of course, that probably these evolutions have favored the ability to relocate. Uh, task of the uh, different task of the global uh, value chains across space and therefore skilled cities uh, have th- have the ability to retain the most value added activities with the less skilled one cities instead uh, pro- progressively losing task. Now we, we see in recent uh, research finds that Uh, in fact, are the low-skilled workers, uh, the ones with with the highest risk of automation of jobs. Um, (coughs) uh, This is a a recent uh, research where we see that the risk, there is a a steep gradient uh, according to the level of education in the risk of automation of jobs. At the same time, we also know that cities are also... uh, very unequal and uh, uh, even if we look just at the uh, inequality in terms of income uh, cities uh, uh, where we were able to to measure and compare across countries uh, cities are more unequal than the rest of their country except in Canada Uh, inequalities uh, in cities have uh, risen faster than elsewhere in the past 20 years and, of course, the larger the city, the larger the inequality. Uh, so um, uh, when, when, we also, when we measure uh, what's happening in Europe, but also in, other, in the other OECD cities in terms of inclusive growth, so even, even if we take a very simple measure of inclusive growth, so we consider to track whether uh, cities uh, have increase their economic prosperities while engaging more of their residents in producing it, which is our simple definition of inclusive growth. And there might be many others. Uh, You see from these graphs that, just to simplify, in the top right quadrant are the cities that have been able to increase income, but also growing labor participation. So having more people participating in generating uh, economic prosperities. But you see that there are also other cities where, in fact, even if the GDP per capita has increased, uh, uh, there has been a stagnation or a decrease in labor participation. So why why cities are important in relation to uh, the topic uh, of inclusive growth and the and the um, and the m- m- impact of globalization and technological change I want to make three uh, points uh, uh, and then a close uh, three points of what, in, what uh, the characteristics let's say of inequalities in cities that uh, specific to cities that are relevant to design policies for inclusive growth also for countries, and uh, then when we think of uh, the European Union. The first first one is that inequality goes beyond income. So we find uh, that there are high inequalities of income uh, across cities and uh, uh, between cities and the rest of the country. But what we find also is that well-being outcomes differ widely uh, across cities also within the same country. Even if we consider a simple measure, again, on employment uh, and jobs, uh, the difference in employment rate between the cities in Italy, between Florence and uh, Palermo, uh, is 30, uh, 36 uh, percentage point and just to give you the the reference between all the OECD countries the difference in employment rate is 32 so within the cities in the same country employment rates are uh, difference in employment rates are higher than across all the OECD countries and also when we measure together not only the income but also income, jobs, health, the level of inequality, when we consider all this uh, together, the differences in the overall living standards among regions and cities are always larger than the difference just in income. So in other words, if we look at well-being outcomes together, that captures better the geographic concentration of prosperity or exclusion. So in terms of policy indication, this already says that Actually, and this was uh, one of the comments made uh, in the previous panel, that we have to think also of complex policies in the sense of considering integrated multidimensional policies that touch upon the different dimensions of well-being and inclusion and not only um, that work on the complementarities across uh, uh, these policy areas. The second point is that um, inequalities. When we think about inequalities in cities, we are. This also means spatial segregation. So means uh, a neighborhood uh, with low-income people and a neighborhood with high-income people. And why is that? uh why is that worrisome well for two reasons first of all because as we know the condition the access to networks the access to education in low-income neighborhoods is much worse than in other places of the city but also because more and more uh, research shows that uh, um, that the neighborhood where you grow up has done an impact on your economic outlook, and uh, and we have um, documented in this report the um, the growing segregation also in European cities uh of course uh, they don 't uh, they still are at a le- at a lower level than North American cities, but still there is a growing segregation there is also a growing segregation of the uh, poorer segment of the population so neighborhoods of poor people and and also what we have found is that, as i said the uh segregation has also an implication in uh, that persist across generations. And so even, for example, uh, in, Nether- in the Netherlands, which is a relatively egalitarian country by many standards, we found that uh, children who grew up in the poorest neighborhoods have, on average, as an adult, in an income which is 5 6% lower, even 10, 12 years later, than their uh, peers who have grown up in mo- the most affluent uh, neighborhoods of the city. So again, uh, this, but this has to do also with the, the governance, the structure, the institutional uh, conditions of a city. And so appropriate governance systems of metropolitan areas can reduce the cost of fragmentation and therefore uh, we found in our research that this is not only reduced fragmentation is associated with less segregation so reducing the fragmentation the political and the administrative fragmentation uh, reduces also uh, segregation finally third and final point uh, as a, as we said at the beginning cities attract highly skilled individuals Uh, but they also attract uh, uh, low-skilled ones and the polarization of skills explains a large part today of the inequalities because of the wage inequalities in cities. So while some research shows that in fact when new jobs are created, when highly skilled jobs are created in cities, they also create a new uh, jobs uh, on the local market, maybe lower skilled jobs in terms of uh, to, res- to respond to the higher demand for local goods and services. However, what we observe is that, first of all, this transmission or local multiplier uh, doesn't work everywhere. Uh, It has been mm, proved that actually in uh, some uh, European countries where the analysis has been done following the analysis done for the American cities, this is not necessarily true. The multiplier of jobs is actually much lower, but also it doesn't happen automatically. So again, you need policies that uh, help uh, to... uh, um, to uh, transfer opportunities in the labor market along all the skills, all the skilled labors. And again, so that means that uh, measure fiscal policies alone can fight poverty and need instead to be part of a more comprehensive package that puts together uh, the uh, uh, structure policies on labour market, on the education, on enhancing skills, with policies targeted more to uh, with fiscal policy and fighting poverty. So I have continue. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Monica. I think it's really also important that we put this focus of uh, cities in the discussion here, because, as you already said, there's an increasing concentration of activities in cities, so we need to understand that ecosystem better. But as you also identified, there's a lot of heterogeneity in different types mm-hmm. of cities, um, and that will also be important for policies to disentangle different types of cities, so cities that are affected by disruption and by the declining sectors. Uh, have of course, need a different kind of policy and environment in those cities that are new hotspots of uh, of new uh, activities uh, here. So we'll come back to that uh, issue uh, later. But for that, I think it's also important that we move to the next speakers, which look more more specifically at the impact of technology change on on inclusiveness here. We first have Dalia Marin, who is a professor of economics at the University of uh, Munich, LMU, uh, also resident non-resident, uh, <laughs> sorry, senior research fellow here at Breugel, and she will talk uh, on one specific type of technological change but very much uh, discussed uh, which is robots uh, so how can we expect robots uh, to, to be also a driver of, uh, of um, inclusiveness uh, here or is it really um, uh, a source of uh, of increasing dispersity uh, here, Thalia.
3: Thank you, yes. I'm going to talk about the brilliant robots and how they affect the labor market in Europe. What do I mean by brilliant robots? Um, We know that in the recent five to six years, we had breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, which combine big data with powerful computers and these combination has uh, has uh, led to the emergence of phenomena like 3, 3, uh, 3D printing, driverless cars, drones, legal software, which search, searches for precedences in law, medical software, which diagnoses illnesses, Udacity and Mock, which are basically online uh, courses, uh, which... Uh, um, so the two economists at MIT, Bry- Brynjolfsson and McGaffey, they have called this phenomenon the, the second machine age. So what I want to ask is, how will the brilliant uh, robots change the world in, in, we live in? So I want to share with you two hypotheses. The first hypothesis is, Uh, the the brilliant robots are going to lead to a revival of manufacturing in rich countries, and the reason is that, um, basically, these machines are going to replace workers, so, in fact, the cost of labor is not going to matter much, so you can, rather than produce in China, you can produce in Germany. Um, Okay, we have uh, some anecdotal evidence that this is happening, and then the question is, um, do we find evidence in the agreg- aggregate data? And since I have only 10 minutes' time, I cannot elaborate on this. But basically what we find is that in the financial crisis, we sh- offshoring, so this is the relocation of activity from rich countries to low-wage countries like China and so on, uh, what we have seen is that in the financial crisis, in all of these seven countries that I have on the slide, we have seen that there was a decline in offshoring, but then it re, re, rebooted again, and you see in, in 2011 it was uh, higher than before. But the new study, which is going to be released um, uh, In November, uh, I just came back from a conference where they they showed this. It showed that uh, actually since 2011, this offshoring is flat or declining. So basically what we have actually now, aggregate data that show that there is actually reshoring taking place in the aggregate data. So there are some differences across countries, but basically see reshoring. So the question is is this good for Europe, for, in particular for Europeans' labor market, if, if manufacturing comes back to Europe? And I'm a more skeptical about this, and that brings me to my second hypothesis, namely here the bitter truth is that technological change will lead to more growth and more productivity and a larger pie, but this larger pie is not going to be necessarily benefiting everybody. So there is no economic law that tells you that everybody will win. So, and... So who is going to lose and who is going to win? And let me, uh, let me show you, we are going to be, a bis- I'm a, a little bit speculative here, but I'm actually going to use actual data to show what uh, I want to discuss with you, namely the hypothesis 2, which says that these brilliant machines are going to replace smart people rather than increase the demand for skills. So the hypothesis is that digitalization is a capital-biased technology rather than a skill-biased technology. Um, I want to illustrate this with some examples, but I, I think maybe I can take the, the examples when... Uh, now I may, I may say the examples. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Emma... EMMA is a software that writes Uh, uh, articles, so journalists, so this software writes articles in three minutes, so so something that I probably would need a whole uh, uh, morning, and okay, so these are not the most brilliant articles, they are fact-based articles but still they are articles, and so we have robot advisors so all these um, these, uh, softwares are replacing journalists, they are replacing financial analysts, a legal software that's searches for precedences in law, potentially replaces lawyers. And there, in the United States. When I was in 2007 in the United States, there was a whole generation of law students which couldn't find a job because basically they were uh, uh, replaced by this uh, software. Um, then we have a medical software which looks in a world library for for illnesses and makes diagnoses uh, for, uh, for illnesses which potentially replaces medical doctors and online courses which potentially replaces professors at the university. So what is a skill bias technical change? That's, I, I'm claiming that this technology is a capital-biased technology, not a skill-biased technology. But people in, 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 in the economics profession have argued that digitalization is actually skill-biased, Acemoglu and author, and they, they say skill-biased technology means that the technology requires ever more skills. So technologies and skills are complements. And the prediction that you get from that hypothesis is that you should observe a right in the skill premium. So you should observe that uh, uh, people with a university degree earn much more relative to somebody with a college degree. Okay, so let's look at this. Here we have the U.S. and then we have several European countries. The blue line gives you uh, the uh, uh, high school, de- uh, excuse me, uh, uh, university degree. The red line gives you uh, college, and the green line gives you uh, uh, primary education. So what you see basically is the United States looks like a skill bias technology. Okay, the the blue line is above. Okay, when you look at European countries, you don't see it nowhere except maybe for Germany since 2005. So in 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 some of the countries, actually the 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 the, the low skill people have been uh, uh, gaining most, in, like in Spain, you know. So um, or the medium skill uh, people have been gaining most, like in Italy. So. So what I'm seeing is the skill premium is declining in Europe, except for Germany since 2005. Now, a variant of the skill bias technology hypothesis is the polarization hypothesis. The polarization hypothesis says that information technology is going to replace routine jobs, those jobs that can be easily codifiable and uh, and re- be replaced by a computer. And uh, these, re- uh, these 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 routine jobs are basically jobs that are in the middle of the income distribution. This is how the technology threatens the middle class. And the prediction is for for this polarization hypothesis is that the the complex jobs, the sophisticated jobs, are going to, uh, like in the high income area, like managers, and in the low income area, like nurses and and so on, uh, are going to face high demand, while uh, those uh, jobs that are not complex and routine, they are going to uh, face low demand and low wages. And let's look at this. Here we see we see the skill premium. This is uh, the yellow line, please, uh, yellow or orange line. Look at this. So this is the ratio of somebody with a university degree relative to somebody with a col- uh, with a um, with a college degree not with a high school degree. Okay, so what do we see? If the polarization hypothesis would be true, we would, uh, we would see that the, this, uh, this skill ratio, the ratio that what, what a university degree, degree earns must be increasing relative to, to the routine job, the, the high-skill job, uh, the high-skill, um, um, the high school um, uh, worker. But we don't see this. We see it's, it's declining. In most of the countries, and in the US, it's flat since 2000, since 2000 basically. So we do not, we do not get really a, a, a support for this polarization hypothesis either. So, so, so why is the skill premium declining? So there are two possibilities. One possibility is that the demand for people with academic degrees has declined. And this is the hypothesis that the the, the technology is capital biased. The other possibility is that the supply of people with academic degrees has increased too much relative to the demand. And that is the expansion of higher education. So let's look at both sides. So capital bias technology means that the technology and skills are substitutes rather than complements. So the more the technology is implemented, the more more capital the technology is using and the less skilled people it is using. So academic people are replaced by machines and so on. Do we find evidence for this? We have several evidence. One is that we see that in the US, which is the technology leader, the skill premium is basically constant since since 2000. That is already an indication that there is something going on. Then we we, we see a global decline in the labor share in GDP. This is the labor. If you, this is a picture of the labor share in, in, in GDP. This is uh, how much of GDP GDP goes to labor income and how much goes to profits, rents, and dividends. Okay, so the the the, the red line is the labor share. And what you see, for instance, for Germany, um, when you look at the right scale, you see that the share of labor income in GDP has declined from seventy percent to something like 55 percent. So more, less and less income goes to labor. And we have a study by Karabar and Naiman. They have shown that 50 percent of this decline in the labor share in income is due to lower prices for technologies. And finally, we have rising skill unemployment Uh, in in particularly among the young. So we see that in the US and in the UK, the skill unemployment doubled, and uh, it's very high in Spain and increased much. It's very high in Italy. It's not high in Germany and it's not high in in Austria, but France has quite some high unemployment among the skills, but it's not increasing. So let me come now to the supply side, the expansion of higher education. It may as well be that the expansion of higher education in Europe has been faster than the speed of technological advancement. So the supply side was expanding faster than the demand side driven by technology. There is a book by Golding and Katz, uh, it's called The Race Between Education and Technology, and this book shows that uh, basically Basically, the skill premium in the U.S. has been risen in the 1980s and 90s, it skyrocketed in this period, because basically education has stopped to advance in the U.S., while technology kept advancing and therefore you see this rise in the skill premium. So what I'm suggesting is that in Europe, we have somehow the reverse golden and cuts effect in which the skill premium in Europe is declining because higher education has been outpacing technological change. So let's look at the evidence for this. Here's higher education. Um, Here you see the expansion of higher education Uh, in the population, and what you see basically is that we have high expansion. The the increase is, is except for Germany, the share of population with tertiary education in in Europe increased by 60 to 250% in the last 15 years. So are we fighting the wrong battle? The policy implication is that the scarcity of education and talent may be, may lie behind us. The push for more and higher education may be the wrong way to go. The new issue we face is capital versus labor rather than human capital, skilled labor versus unskilled labor. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dalia. This was a very provocative um, uh, presentation so i'm sure this will uh, raise a lot of questions uh, i just also like to point out that to some extent skills and, and education is is not necessarily the same so it's not tertiary educate people that always are the high skill skills is is a different concept to that but unfortunately we don't have good statistics and that's why you you have to rely on those here and also routine jobs it's more about routine activities uh, here and so with every in every job there are routine activities here and the technological Uh, opportunities the extent to which you can rescale within your job from routine to non-routine type of activities here, and increase the productivity in any kind of level here. So that could also be another approach uh, here, but unfortunately we don't have the data to measure that. Um, So, but I'm sure that we will have uh, broad discussion on on these uh, issues uh, here. But before we go into the discussion, we still have also Joel Derwass who will present uh, research that he has been doing. He has been doing substantial research on inclusiveness uh, since some time now. Uh, But uh, one piece of that research that he will be presenting here today is again the impact of technological change on uh, inequality uh, here. So Jolt, the floor is uh, yours.
2: Yeah, thank, thank you very much, <coughs> Ryan Hilda. Um, it was very interesting to hear the, the previous two presentations and in <coughs> fact I have to say that <coughs> I will have some overlaps with Dalia, but not just overlaps, but in some aspects uh, I will have a different conclusion. Than, than what you what you what you reached, so the so the question I I also ask is um, is whether technical or technological change <coughs> has contributed to uh, income inequality. And in the presentation, I will only show you a couple of charts which <coughs> uh, which will be which are in our report uh, <coughs> that we will uh, also publish publish shortly. So let me start <coughs> by showing. Uh, Two simple charts: one for the European Union and one for the United States. It just shows the the number of jobs in millions, uh, according to the three different levels of educational attainment. And I mean, since <coughs> I mean, the composition of the European Union has changed, um, we have uh, uh, this so-called EU15, the first 50 members of the European Union. Uh, and for these countries, we have data from 1992. Why, for the 27 members, Croatia is not, not yet included, we have, we have data from um, 2000. And what is really striking here, uh, if you look at the, the red line, so the number of jobs with, with tertiary education has been steadily increasing, and even there was, you cannot, cannot see any change during the, during the crisis. If you look at a at country level, even in hard-hit countries like Greece or Latvia, where employment fell by, by about 20%, the number of, of tertiary educated jobs had practically not changed. And in countries like, like Italy, for example, or, or France, where overall unemployment went down, but also in Spain, in fact, even during the crisis, parallel with a large increase in unemployment, the number of jobs with, with tertiary education has, in fact, increased. Now, compare these two to the other two lines. Uh, the orange one is the upper secondary. There was some increase up to the crisis and and no increase since then and If you look at the blue the the less than uh, primary uh, or or primary or lower secondary uh, that has been steadily falling slightly falling before the crisis and even accelerated during the crisis so from from this chart you can you can say that that uh, clearly I mean the um, the demand for tertiary educated people has increased in Europe. But it's not only in Europe. The, exactly the same is going on in the United States. Again, here just pure numbers on, on in terms of millions of, of people. Uh, I mean, the, the classification of educational attainment is a bit different in the U.S., but here again we have broadly three the same three categories. And again, the red one, uh, <clears throat> the people with bachelor degree or or higher university degrees has been going up. Again, during the crisis, there was a short flattening, let's say for one or two years, but even after it, it it continued. The middle degree, the the orange one, again, was was broadly stable, and and again, also in the the US, you can see that people with a lower education attainment, uh, there was actually uh, a fall since the crisis. And it's very notable that both in Europe and, and in the US, only jobs with, with tertiary education has increased in the past six or seven years. I think it's really, really a notable uh, development. And, and I think do suggest that these fundamental trends are, are ongoing. So, so whether your, your last conclusion that, <coughs> that uh, whether we have enough talented people and don't and no, no need to focus more on them, uh, I think that's, that's, that's an issue we could, we could discuss maybe. Certainly there is a, a phenomenon of so-called underemployment. Uh, whereby, you know, university degree people work in, in McDonald's or and, and somewhere else. But I saw a very interesting study for, for the United States. Unfortunately, I haven't seen a study, in, study for, for the U.S., but for the U- United States, it found that, yes, there is underemployment, but there are two issues. First, very few, I, I mean... Uh, uh, University degree people work in in the McDonalds and some of them work, but very few few of them. And even though they're still underemployment, they still do some some jobs which which require some 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 skills, some cognitive skills. And second, what that study also found is that this underemployment is a temporary phenomenon. So people after graduation, they do, to, do sometimes do jobs which are, which are lower than they are qualified to do, but this doesn't last for long. After, after a few years, they can find better jobs which correspond to their education. Now, but the increase indeed in both in the EU and the US of, of, uh, of university degree jobs uh, would indeed suggest that this so-called skill premium that Dalia discussed uh, quite a lot uh, went up. And again, I have a chart for, for, for the U.S. From, from a different source than UN than and, and a bit, bit longer horizon, but it exactly shows the same that you showed, so maybe I don't have to spend much time apart from explaining what you can see. So on the left-hand side, you can see the solid line, and on the right-hand side, the, the dashed line. And the solid line just simply shows, uh, in current U.S. dollars, the, the median weekly earnings uh, according to four different educational levels. And the top one, the blue, is, is the bachelor uh, degree or higher. And again, you can see that there was an increase, let's say, up to 2,000, and, and it was b- broadly stable uh, since then, so for bachelor degrees. But for the other three categories, there was actually a decline. So in, in the U.S., the med- median weekly earnings in, in U.S. dollars has, uh, has actually declined. And then the dashed lines shows the ratio of um, of the blue to this, to this gray, which again, Went up uh, from about one and a half to two and a half from uh, the late 1970s to to the 2000s and have been staying there for <coughs> uh, since then. And um, <coughs> and again, this this skill biased hypothesis, uh, technological change hypothesis that Dalia so clearly described, would suggest that you know there's a growing demand for for skilled people. Um, Therefore, their wages should should go up, and indeed, if you look at my charts I have showed you so far, it may be indicative that some of this sort is going on at least in the U.S. Because clearly, there was a huge increase in the number of jobs for for university degree, and also their wages went up relative to the rest. But, and there are many many buts. <clears throat> so. <clears throat> um, so the skill premium, again, as Dahlia uh, very nicely uh, emphasized, has not increased everywhere. In fact, it increased in very few countries. Now, here, uh, you see most countries on the left-hand side. China is on the, on the right-hand side because the, the scale is, 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 is much, much different. So it, it shows uh, the real wage, real hourly wage change. Uh, for, from 1995 to 2009, unfortunately the dataset doesn't have more recent observation, for the three skilled categories. And the US, USA, you can see that very clearly in the, in the high-skilled people, there was about a 25% real increase in, in hourly wages. In the low-skilled, it was only about, about five. Now, If you look at China on the right, it's a different scale, but exactly the same is, same is going on. And a little bit Germany, again, Dalia has highlighted. Uh, but again, in Germany the, the difference is very small. But practically in other countries, uh, you don't see that. and in, in many countries you see exactly the opposite. I mean in Korea, it's basically all three educational levels or skill levels practically benefited from, from the same increases. And in other countries, even in the United Kingdom, you know where inequality is was higher than in the rest of the European Union. Uh, high skilled people hasn't benefited more than low skilled people. Also in in, in Sweden, Spain, uh, Italy, France, and in Japan. So in all of these countries, it's quite interestingly that <coughs> that indeed the, the income of high skilled people has increased less than the income of low skilled people. <coughs> now a second, which <coughs> relates to the. Uh, Indeed, to the supply demand conditions, I'm also a little bit looking at, but I'm, I'm losing a little bit different indicators. So, again, this chart just shows the number of new tertiary educated people. Um, again, uh, time horizon is, is not so long, it starts in 98. Uh, we couldn't find comparable data uh, earlier. Uh, I mean, clearly, China and Japan are are different categories. I mean, in China, there was a very rapid rise. In China, there was a very, very few university graduates uh, in the 1990s and increased very, very rapidly. Uh, In Japan, the number actually went down. But if you look at the US and Europe, (coughs) I mean, you can see an an increase. I think Dahlia, you showed it as a share of of active population or or something like that. But I'm not sure that that's the the best way to, to show this data. Because, I mean, because surface of US population expanding much, much faster. Uh, I think it's, it would be better to relate it uh, to the number of jobs with, with, um, <coughs> with university degrees. And if you relate it to the number of jobs, then the difference between Europe and US is not that much. And in absolute number, the, or in percentage change, the change is, is not, not that different. Nice second one, again, unemployment, so I'm also using some of the data that, that you showed, which was also very interesting, that, that uh, <clears throat> this only shows the unemployment rate of tertiary educated people. Uh, and just in brackets, I, I, I know that probably this is among the very, very few indicators where Europe did better than the United States during the crisis. Uh, <clears throat> if you look at in the pre-crisis period, the unemployment rate of tertiary educated people was, was broadly the same. In, uh, in in Europe and in, in the u s uh, while during the crisis there was a quite, quite a lot increase in the, in the u s and a very small increase in in Europe. but again, I mean uh, the unemployment rate should, should somehow reflect the, the the tightness of the of the labor market, what are the supply demand conditions and this chart shows that in the pre crisis period it was it was broadly similar uh, during the crisis, there was even more abundant supply in the u s than in, 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 in Europe, which should have led to a fall in the US skill premium relative to the European Union, but it has not happened. So my ultimate conclusion will be that it's probably not technological change which drove the skill premium. But here I have a cross-plot. <coughs> uh, I hope it's, it, it will be it, uh, easily visible, even though there are many, many countries indicated. So just here we relate the unemployment rate to the change in the skill premium. Uh, So on the horizontal axis, you can see the unemployment rate. on the vertical axis, you can see the increase in skill premium. Now, it was the highest in Poland, as you can see. But Poland is a transition country, so, uh, uh, I mean, it may be more different than than more advanced countries. But among the advanced countries, the largest change in the skill premium was in the US. Um, But what you can see is that there is clearly uh, a kind of (coughs) negative relationship which, as we expect from, from, from economic principles, so when unemployment is smaller, I mean, the relative wage of uh, those unemployed should increase, when unemployment is high, then the wage should fall. And we do see this relationship, but we also see that the US is an outlier upwards. So it does suggest that something special has happened in the US, uh, <coughs> which, uh, in my view, cannot be explained by, by only supply and demand conditions. Uh, another chart which we've we taken from the OECD um, <coughs> which shows again a cross plot, <coughs> so I hope it, it, it you were able to, to to see it. So the horizontal we, we show the the tertiary educated premium, so how much higher educated people earn more than than uh, <coughs> uh, uh, people with middle uh, qualifications and on the on the vertical, you can see the the share of people. With tertiary education. And again, it's one of the highest in the US, as as you can see, it's about 45%. But again, US, but also Ireland is a clear outlier. So again, where you see a relationship and there is, you know, a kind of more supply or a higher share of of tertiary educated people, uh, um, um, you would expect a, a smaller increase in the. Uh, uh, in the relative earnings but again the US is an outlier and the last chart I'll show you uh, uh, that we did from, um, found from a very interesting study uh, conducted by, by uh, someone from, 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 the, from the Brookings Institute is looked at um, which are the industries in the United States uh, where most of the top 1% earners come and here you can see on the top you can see legal services which is probably not a very high-tech industry, even though, as you as you mentioned, I mean, machines can now replace certain tax. Uh, again, hospitals, you know, doctors, MDs earn, earn really a lot, other physicians. Certainly the financial sector is is also there. But what this chart shows is that, is that in the top 1% in the U.S., you can see a number of industries <coughs> uh, uh, which are, to some extent, enjoy a relatively high protection. I mean, <coughs> lawyers are very much protect themselves within the, within the US. Um, and you don't see too many industries where indeed you know high-tech is on, on ongoing. I mean, there is com- computer system design is there, but it's it's not in the in the higher ranking. Um, so what <coughs> this suggests to me, and also all the all the previous evidence I, I presented, that the development in the US that indeed high skilled people earn earn so much more may not be driven fully or not to a large extent by by technological technological change but other factors could could be at work one could be regulation that uh, uh, you know some of these uh, uh, <coughs> jobs or or industries enjoy a very high rent over their skills another could be public policy um, whereby uh, taxation and, and redistribution um, <coughs> uh, at least in the United States, became much less progressive and and thereby left a much much higher share in the in the hands of the rich. So overall, I would I would conclude that in the in the United States, it's not very likely that technological change drove increasing inequalities. And in fact, in Europe, in we are in a much much better position. And just I said the last, but still I I, I would like to show that in Europe, you also see. Uh, the industry is the most open earners that manufacturing ranks very, very high. I mean, <coughs> certainly finance is the top, but manufacturing ranks very, very highly. So in Europe, uh, <coughs> much more of the rich people come from those sectors where technological change is actually happening. So with this note, let me, let me thank you for your attention and and give back right here to the floor.
0: <coughs> so I think by now we have collected quite some interesting uh, views uh, to... Um, to um, feed our discussion, uh, but let me nevertheless bring the discussion back to the, the topic of, of this session, although Jolt opened really the discussion by saying what explains the growing inequality can is beyond uh, technological change, uh, also includes other um, uh, things we have to look at. I would li- like to bring the discussion back to really the impact of technological change, be this from digital, be this from uh, artificial intelligence or any kind of specific technological change, what shifts um, Uh, Do we see, in terms of jobs, which jobs will be affected by these technological changes, who will win or not? Uh, Will offshoring, uh, will that stop? Will that bring back jobs or not, and for whom? Um, And then, of course, big discussion is the skills. Uh, Is it the high skills uh, that will be protected or not? Uh, But also the issue of routinized uh, jobs, routinized uh, activities here. And then we have to look at not just only um, the extent to which demand for these different type of jobs are, are being affected, but also the supply. And then also the issue of is skills. Is that something we can equate with education and tertiary education or not? Um, So is indeed always uh, tertiary educated people, are these the high skills, the ones that are more safe from from routinization or not? So that's, um, again, another issue of of discussion uh, here. So I think we have a lot of ground to cover for discussion. So I would like to see uh, comments from the floor, and then we will... uh, Try to respond to that uh, as much as possible. So, yeah. Do we have? Question.
4: Question.
5: Yeah. Just one quick question for Professor Marin. If I understood correctly, y- your proposal is that actually we, um, uh, in in a typical in a typical production equation, we would see a firm, we would see capital, labor. And a share of technology and a share of technology that is usually represented by uh, an exogenous so that is that is outside of the firm's control uh, contribution somehow by replacing the the human labor capital uh, dichotomy and, and replacing it with capital, you are somewhat introducing that share back into capital. So how do firms how do you exactly foresee firms two questions for C firms endogenizing, that is, making its own, this, this appropriation of the contribution of technology for their own production. And the second question is, does this imply deregulation by governments? I mean, what is the role of government and of infrastructure uh, on on production? Thank you. Are you
3: taking notes? Maybe we first collect some questions
0: or you want
3: to... I, I don't mind. Um, yeah. Um, so how do we think about how firms re, uh, introduce capital-intensive technologies? So one way that they do it is just that when they start to hire, they, they compare uh, what do they have to pay for a person uh, to hire and what does it pay for them to invest in a machine that is in principle going to do the same job. And so then they hire the mach- then they employ the machine basically and they don't hire. So that's what part of the part of, part of the reason why we, we see men without work in the United States and the United States is a good place to start to look at this because it's in the forefront so in the forefront of the technology. so it's it, it, in this country is is where it is happening the most so we can study it. So here we see um, that the technology has been replacing the workers. Um, the government, uh, uh, was your question, what can the government do, or whether the government has been contributing to this? You know, I mean, so
4: far, this, this technological
5: development has been something that happens to companies, and that has been leading innovation to companies. And I, I believe that what you described so far is that innovation becomes something that is much more controllable by businesses, that is that the rate of productivity will actually become something that the firm can control just by investing, just as we had ICT some decades ago. So this would be something that the firms would now be able to control. Now, I do see the comparison, but is it that the governments have less and less control on, on what we can do? I mean, is it that regulation will actually have less
3: and less control and infrastructure and input into, into, firms, um, into firms production? Um, I don't believe so, uh, that the government has now less. Um, the technology in itself is not something that suggests that I- the, uh, if the government wants to regulate uh, something, which we have to discuss what it is, it should be, if there is a case here for regulation. Um, that uh, that it's less powerful in, than in the past. I don't believe so.
0: I also like not to think of uh, technology as an exogenous uh, for firms. So here, there's lots of heterogeneity in firms. Some firms are driving really the technological changes and what's happening in these, these firms is completely different from those that are reacting. But we had another question there.
6: Thank you. Uh, First, I had a a comment. We have uh, two economists and different views, so I I really think we are on enlightened uh, enlightened hypothesis rather than uh, more secure ground. Um, My my second remark is that I feel very uncomfortable with your definition of skills. Um, I mean, higher education, university, and so on. I mean, do we consider that uh, technical people, people having uh, practical skills, are not just as skilled? I would. Uh, I have read recently the books from Matthew Crawford, and I think we we have to think in a different way um, about that. And I wanted to because your um, your study is based on university skills fine, um, it's it's good enough, but I know many people who are very clever and have skills, and no university. And then I would have a question for you, Mrs. Uh, Marine. Um, you finished your intervention by saying that we were going to a situation where it was capital versus labour. Um, so it basically means that in the future, we will have more losers, and this will lead to a very um, unsecure and unsustainable society. I wonder if, in your head, you have given some consideration to the idea of a universal minimum income uh, in that
0: uh, so these are big questions. You want to respond immediately, or do we first collect perhaps some related questions? Then you get also some time to think about.
7: <laughs> yeah, Well, I, I wanted to uh, to add uh, to to that line or line of uh, question, which was about the the role between capital and labour. And uh, of course, there's a vivid literature uh, out there uh, at the moment, and. Dalia, you seem to be more on the side of Karabamunes and Naiman, or perhaps even Piketty, uh, that sort of see capital and labor as as substitutes. Um, But if you look at the empirical literature, most of the empirical literature actually finds that capital and labor are complements. So the elasticity of substitution being less than one. So in other words, if we have more capital, it actually helps us because it... uh, it increases uh, the marginal productivity, it increases productivity of labor, so it actually helps with the wage share. It's a nice paper by, by Bob Lawrence of, of, of Harvard, an MBR working paper, that I think quite nicely uh, shows this and, and very much contradicts um, uh, the Kaaba uh, the Bonas-Neiman uh, QGE paper, and uh, and comes then to very different conclusions that, in fact, what we need is a higher capital stock. We don't need a lower capital stock. We need a higher capital stock so that the wage share can, can fall again. So I, w- I would like to get your reaction on that. Thank you.
0: Add on to that too, because the examples that you gave, like for instance, these um, algorithms that help lawyers, that they will not replace lawyers; they will allow to Thank shift you. activities of, of lawyers to to more productive type of activities. That could be another role. Same for MOOCs. I hope it's not going to replace <laughs> professors, but allows them to to become more productive here. And in that respect. It's the robots or the artificial intelligence that will increase the productivity and will be complements rather than substitutes. So similar question. But um, still collecting a few questions. Yeah. Yes, you
4: too. Yeah, Yeah, James Watson, Business Europe. Two two comments, firstly um, to Professor Marin. I mean, you noted that the skills premium for, 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 for university education was falling, but it seems an entirely different question whether we're having too much university education. That remains for the individual and society to consider the cost-benefit analysis essentially, whether the benefits of university, the wide benefits, outside the, uh, the cost. It's not necessarily a bad thing that that premium is falling. Um, and then secondly, um, to Zolt, you put up that famous, um, the famous graph about showing that the, um, that the median earnings in the US hadn't risen essentially over the last 20 30 years. Just a reminder, did you see the you may have seen the very good analysis by the Resolution Foundation last week that reminded us of course that that's not a longitudinal survey. It's not actually looking at an, an in, <coughs> sorry, it's not actually looking at an individual and how their wage has changed over time. It's looking at the median income earner and of course that medium income earner may have changed, has done in the US where we've had a, where the US has had a lot of immigration, coming in at the bottom end of the income distribution. So the person who was the medium income earner, of course, is now above the medium income earner and that should reflect how we how how, how we interpret that, that, that graph. Thanks. I'd just like to follow up in the same general trend and ask you to reflect a little bit on decomposing the concept of skills. Mm-hmm. So if you take a look at your variables over time, they all make sense. And there, there's some agreement and disagreement in the presentations and so forth. But I'm reflecting on the point of what skills have we developed in people in the labor force across different generations. And how does that supply meet the demand that we're seeing in the environment? And if we take a look at skills today and what is needed, and where we're going, what are the what skills have a competitive advantage going ahead, both on an individual and on a community level?
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, good point. One more question? Well, two. <laughs> Maybe a follow-on to the compliment. Uh, uh, versus replacement question, but um, I wonder if a more detailed understanding of um, how technology change impacts employment is is required. Um, you know, going back to transportation, if you look at um, ride sharing services like Lyft or Uber, uh, just one anecdotal example, uh, those are technology innovations that clearly are bringing people into the labor force, whereas you know, perhaps that the next technology click, which is full automation of of, uh, transport, uh, would be destructive. And so uh, I wonder if a deeper understanding of uh, which is um, um, pro-employment and which is not would be, in terms of technology change, might be useful.
0: So looking at which technology changes to see the effects on skill. One more last question, and then we're going to return to the floor for the last... Yeah, I know. (laughs)
4: Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, My name is Jutaro Kaneko, uh, Bank of Japan. I have two kids, so if possible, I'd like to ask Professor Marin for some practical advice uh, in terms of educating uh, my kids to secure their employment. If if not uh, some specific uh, industry or field, uh, but uh, what I should should keep in mind uh, to guide my kids, not to be fired in future. Thank you very much.
0: OK, so um, we're going to return to the floor here. I'm going to give the floor to, sorry? Yeah, order? Yeah, so I uh, wanted to start with Dalia, then you, and then uh, Monica. Bye. And then we close. Yeah,
3: yeah I, I'm not sure that I can answer all questions, but. Uh, <laughs> um, let me come to first to uh, the issue of comp- uh, uh, capital and skills as complements versus substitutes. <clears throat> there is no question that the, n- the new economy has produced uh, things like star phenomena, the star um, lawyer, the star professor, the star medical doctor. For those, it is clear that the, that the uh, new technologies have made these people more productive. They, they not only made these people more productive, but it magnified, actually, the m- amount of money they can earn. So it's not surprising that we find among the top income earners, the legal professions, in spite of the fact that I'm telling you that the legal profession has been going through a big disruption because of these technologies. So because education in itself is not going to tell you anymore whether you are going to be a high earner or a mediocre earner, because if you fall into the club... Because the man, top managers, they are not necessarily more educated than, than somebody who works in a, in a I don't know, in a, in a bank for a relatively mediocre income. So, So it's... And in the end the question whether it's a substitute or a complement is going to be an empirical question. So what I'm, I showed you was some evidence that we have, and I think the most, uh, the most, for me, the most noticeable evidence is the U.S., because since 2000, the U.S. skill premium isn't rising anymore. And... Remember, when you, when you, when I showed you the graph, I showed that the expansion of higher education has stopped to advance since the, uh, since the 1980s. So that explains why in the U.S. you have this steep rise in the skill premium. And, the higher education hasn't become more expansionary in the United States. It, no, it's a, it, they stopped investing in it. Uh, actually, Germany is another case where the, the, that didn't happen. <coughs> and therefore, if the skill premium is declining or flat in the U.S., it is driven by technology, because on the supply side, there wasn't a change. So that's my indication why I think this is what is happening. Um, Yes. Yeah, I I think I wanted to say one thing to my uh, to Zolt. Um, You have been showing a a, a slide in which you you showed that the only really uh, jobs that have been rising were the high income, uh, high tertiary education jobs. So it cannot be the case that uh, 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 they are fall that there is a less demand for them. But what actually happens, and there is a big debate in Germany about this. Uh, it's called the uh, the the Academica It's called this debate. Basically, uh, basically what you, we find in Germany is that, and there is another debate that that the bachelor has not been accepted by industry in Germany. This is the debate that is going on because the bachelor is not is, is a wrong concept. So uh, actually, the, uh, the the firms are not uh, valuing the bachelor degree very highly and therefore you see people working with a bachelor degree but they work for an occupation that basically covers um, uh, a, a high school degree. So they are doing low they, 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 are, they, ca- they get a job so it's still true if you, have, if, you, if you have a tertiary education your probability of getting unemployed is much lower Actually, it's 60% more likely that you get get a job when you have a tertiary education than when you don't. Uh, So it is still an insurance today, but we don't know whether it's true for tomorrow because if the technology, in fact, is a technology that has the propensity of replacing skilled workers, this is not going to be true for the future anymore. Um, One... One one more. Okay, one One more. Okay, let me then cost benefit. Yes, we may value education per se. That's true. I'm not arguing against that. I'm benefiting from my education. There's no question about it. But what you cannot guarantee anymore is that having a higher education is going to give you a higher income. That's what it means that if... In the future, the demand for skills is going down, and you still invest and get a higher education. You might end up getting a job that is less well paid. You might still benefit from it because you enjoy education. That's that's another question. And what should we edu- what should we what should I learn? Should I answer that question? No. <laughs> okay. We can take
0: it uh, after, uh, during the break. So, Jones- yeah, so,
2: Sorry. <laughs> so a few, just a few few questions on, <clears throat> on, um, on skills versus education. And, and we have to say that we also struggled a lot <clears throat> with these two different concepts. In most times we say, how are you educated? Um, <clears throat> uh, but as regarding skills, uh, again, the OECD has a, has a nice, nice uh, yeah. program assessing adults' uh, capabilities. They look at uh, numeracy, uh, literacy and problem solving, and clearly, what they find that in these three more cognitive areas, clearly the level of education is very strongly correlated. Now you are fully right that if there is a technician who does a brilliant job in you know repairing or preparing or, or something, he may not be good in 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 you know numeracy or, or whatsoever, um, and that's a very fair point. But it's very difficult to how to address that 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 issue, because. Unfortunately, there is, there is no data. So the data we have is for, for education, um, and we don't really have the individual skills. Now, on, on James' comment, uh, I mean, I very much agree. I mean, you have basically one, one of the comments was that we use this long, uh, longitudinal survey and, and showing the.
4: No,
2: it was, it's not a, longitudinal. not a longitudinal. So so it's, it's not so not following the people, but always showing the, the the median, and this is a very fair comment. The reason we we use this data is that it's relatively long and and consistent, but we use two kinds of data. On another chart, we use the average from the word input-output tables, and that shows some small positive uh, increase in in real terms for, again, low-skilled or low-educated. But even in that survey, you do find that the high-skilled or higher-educated on average received a much, much higher increase in, in benefits. And just you know for, for the Japanese uh, colleague, you know I, uh, <clears throat> what, what your, you should tell your children, I have, also have two boys. Uh, <clears throat> I also have two boys and I'm <clears throat> also thinking about what to, what to advise them. <laughs> but one thing I will definitely advise them is to go to university. And again, I think Dalia very nicely said that if you're at university you have a much higher probability of being employed. Much lower probability of being unemployed. There are many, also macroeconomic studies which showed, both for the U.S. European countries. I even mentioned Greece or Latvia, where where university degree people have not not suffered, by by lower educated people did suffer. Now, you know, in what discipline? That's that's you know difficult to difficult to 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 say. But you know, if if you have a good good degree, you will always able to, or your children will always able to, you know, retrain themselves in other other disciplines. So that I urge them to go to universities.
1: Monica? Very short. Just a comment on the, on the two questions, on the skill premium and the impact of technological change on jobs, which are the questions. Of course, they are empirical questions. And so, to a certain extent, we, uh, we answer with the tools we have. Um, which are not perfect, uh, uh, and it's true that, uh, you know, we still use uh, educational attainment, but at the same time, it is important to move to a, a different definition of skills. And uh, so just uh, so the OECD, since uh, two years ago, uh, does this uh, survey on uh, uh, adults' skills, and tries to use it more and more, not only on, so what are the skills, but also how skills are put in use in the jobs, in the job market, and also on the current jobs. So this is just an invitation to to look at it. And uh, similarly, for what regards the impact of technological change on jobs, I think that some of these, uh, mm, these response, these answers, may change when we look not at the industry uh, that, uh, that we saw uh, in one of the graphs, uh, but we look at tasks within industry. And in fact, results are very different. And so maybe we should move more and more towards uh, this kind of, a, of analysis. Uh, just f- to finish with a, a light note on the uh, future for the, uni- for the kids in university, of course, I don't have the answer. I did hear about a survey uh, promoted by LinkedIn where the responses were that the jobs more, the highest, with the highest demand were uh, not surprisingly uh, engineers. Uh, uh, software uh engineer softwares but also uh, zumba instructors which is uh, you know a fitness class so that might be also another another option
0: okay thank you so I think this uh, this session was really very good in raising a lot of questions uh, at least also already providing some avenues for answers but no definite answers so um, I would have a suggestion to turn to robots and artificial intelligence to sort out this big question on what the impact of technology is on jobs maybe they can solve (laughs) it okay but now we go for a coffee break short very short uh, stop